the optimal life. All right, Scott, here we are. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you because I don't uh, recall having much AI conversation on this podcast. Um, there's been a lot of different people from all walks of life on the podcast, but we've barely touched on artificial intelligence. So let's start there. How would you well, define? How would you define first off for for the for the audience? How do you define artificial intelligence? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that you'll get different answers from different people. But this idea of artificial intelligence is kind of a very broad topic. Right, so we we have the things that we see on TV, you know, the the machines, the computers, the androids, the uh, commander data from Star Trek. Uh, those types of things are what we call general artificial intelligence. We don't actually have those yet, except in the movies. But uh, we also have a form of artificial intelligence called machine learning, and that is why artificial intelligence is in the news is because this is a way to use our machines, use our computers to look at patterns in data and to recognize those patterns and be able to predict things in the future and to do it sometimes much more accurately than a human can. And that can be data about images, that can be data about speech, that can be data about financial markets. There's all sorts of types of data that we can feed into these machine learning algorithms and then they can predict um, or classify uh, existing data or what is going on in the world. And so that's what uh, we hear about and that's what's really kind of, uh, it's, it's more around us than we might recognize in some ways. So that's what's happening so, currently with social media, correct? Facebook, Instagram, these are using, yeah. these are using that yeah. type of technology to understand us and to start what's happening what are they doing with what are, what are they doing with this data so they're developing an algorithm or they're training an algorithm on your behavior and uh, let's just start out with a simple example let's say that we want to have our computer be able to tell the difference between your cat and your dog well we could sit there and program it right so we could program it for probably years on end because, you know, cats and dogs, they both walk on four legs and um, my dog is uh, uh, very big, but I have a neighbor whose dog is smaller than my cat. And so there's lots of variations we'd have to account for. Well, with machine learning, and this is where the magic comes in, could just give the computer some capabilities, uh, some raw capabilities uh, for learning things. And then I could say, here's 10,000 images of cats and here's 10,000 images of dogs. And it would learn based on pattern recognition how to distinguish a dog and a cat. And now when we're in the quote unquote real world, uh, it would be able to tell whether a particular animal is a dog, a cat or something else. Likewise, Facebook and Instagram and all these other platforms are basically collecting data about you. They're actually watching, for example, Amazon watches what area of the screen your mouse is hovering over while you are on Amazon. And so they can tell that, um, boy, he was almost clicking on buy or he was looking at other 
um, information, uh, other des descriptors there. So maybe we can tell more about this particular person's shopping behavior and maybe we can nudge them into that purchase, right? Uh, or we know that uh, Scott is more likely to uh, uh, make purchases after, uh, you know, 7 p.m. Maybe he's had a, a glass of wine with uh, dinner or something. And so we will really hit the ads hard then uh, where we're not going to, uh, especially for the high-priced items, uh, whereas we're not going to do that when he's having his morning coffee. So it's all about learning about us and being able to predict our behavior and how we will react to a certain ad or a certain stimulus. Let me ask you, uh, going back, I've got a couple questions there. My first one is the dog and cat example. Why does it matter? If a machine gets ten thousand images of each and then is able to determine which is which, what what, are they, what, what does that matter? What is it? What's the big deal? Um, well, let's use a, an example that may affect you and I and may have great benefits for you and I. Uh, there's a lot of things that humans do that involve pattern recognition. So when you go to your doctor and they do some imaging, for example, an X-ray or an MRI, that's going to be sent to a radiologist who is trained to look for patterns. Well, we can do the same thing, uh, and it's being done um, by doctors um, uh, with our radiological data. And so they have several algorithms where they've fed, uh, it's more than 10,000, I think it's like 30,000 images of people that have pneumonia, here's x-rays of people that have pneumonia, here's x-rays of people that don't have pneumonia, here's x-rays of people that had pneumonia but we thought they didn't have it, so that's a, a, a false negative, and uh, here's images of people that uh, we had pneumonia but didn't have pneumonia, so a false positive. We can feed all that into a computer, and then when you or I happen to hit the emergency room, they can take an image of us and rather than waiting for a radiologist to look at it or maybe the radiologist has you know, been up for 20 hours working hard on uh, their backlog of work, uh, maybe they wouldn't be as accurate, they can feed it into this algorithm and so they're finding these algorithms are um, more, more accurate and faster in areas such as radiology and pathology than current radiologists and pathologists. So those uh, professions are going to change but it's probably going to help you and I have better health outcomes. So yeah, so how are those professions, what, what kind of impact does it have in the medical world where a robot or computer program, an algorithm, is ultimately able to tell us with substantial certainty what our diagnosis is? What does that do to the uh, medical professional? Well, we don't quite know yet. There's a really good book that I'd recommend to your listeners called Deep Medicine. It's by Eric Topol, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And he's a doctor by trade, and he's looking at that, and he's very hopeful that the nature of medicine will change from not being as much of a technical one uh, as more of uh, something where your emotional skills are more important, right? So we now have been able to diagnose Scott's malady, um, what do we know about Scott? Are we going to be able to convince him to make the lifestyle changes he needs to make? Um, or is it better to offer some 
drug therapy that might be uh, offer a better outcome for someone like Scott. Let's get to know him better. So he's hoping that uh, the nature of being a doctor will change from being a very technical one to being more about the entire patient. So that entire um, holistic approach to patient care. That's uh, and and the answer is that we really don't know yet. No, we don't. It's really uh, fascinating stuff too because you think about. If it's going to change the medical profession where the, the doctor becomes less important from a technical perspective and more like a counselor and, and a, a, a therapist of some sort, a caregiver, uh, what does that ultimately look like in medical schools You know, 30, 40, 50 years from now? How many kids are, are going to be interested in that? Does the curriculum change? Uh, there's so many different ways you can go down this, this rabbit hole. It does does the does the technology become so superior that we stop? Um, we we have so many less humans interacting in that universe, and then eventually, a hundred years from now, the 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 computers are are basically the end all be all, and the humans have become so irrelevant. But then there there could be a problem with the computer, and, and because things have adapted, and, you know, there's like a whole rabbit hole you can go down here. Yeah, uh, I think there is, but I tell you that one of the things that I've found out, the more I learn about AI, the more I work with it, is that it's very narrow. Okay, so we have one algorithm that's do really well at looking at pneumonia. We have another one that's really good about predicting uh, kidney failure. Okay, but we don't have a generalized AI or algorithm that can say, you know, Scott's coughing he's feeling lethargic um you know he's 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 off he knows something's wrong uh what kind of test should we order um what's going on in his history so i think we're going to see doctors really having to learn to work alongside these ais because there's really a lot of decisions that still need to be made such as what is the correct uh, lab diagnostic that needs to be ordered Mm. and so i think uh I'm not as scared the more I learn about uh, what's going on in the field. Uh, I think it's going to be um, something where we're going to have to think more uh, about probabilities because, once again, these machine learning algorithms are coming back with very accurate probabilities, but they're still probabilities, right? So um, the doctor needs to understand what is an appropriate uh, test for this particular patient. You talked also earlier about the program's understanding where the, the mouse is hovering on the Amazon, he almost clicked here, he's drinking a glass of wine, this is the time we can get him, we know what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> so I always find it interesting, Scott, is that I'll be sitting having a conversation and I might say Ford Bronco, verbal, out loud to somebody, or our, and, then, and then the next day or later that night, I'm scrolling through my Instagram feed and up pops a Ford Bronco ad. Is that coincidence or is that happening directly? Yeah. Um, smart speakers are kind of uh, a difficult field. Um, there isn't any clear evidence that they're using that for uh, direct targeting like that. So certainly if you have an Amazon Alexa, maybe you're going to uh, see more ads for things you've inquired about or talked about um, with that Am- Amazon Alexa. But um, 
there's also a little bit of a problem in a confirmation bias there, right? So if you think you're uh, being spied on, then uh, you're going to find evidence for being spied on. So I, I don't know that it's entirely clear, but uh, I don't think that uh, these algorithms have to do that much. Uh, they don't have to listen in on everything because we reveal a lot with our mouse clicks, with our browsing the Internet, um, a lot of these cookies that get put on your computer when you uh, go to Facebook, well, they track you as you move throughout the entire web, okay? And they not only, uh, you know, in the case of your phone, uh, prior to Apple's latest uh, update, Facebook not only knew what you were doing on Facebook, but they knew that, oh, Scott spent an hour on TikTok today, and he spent it during this time. And, oh, he happened to send 48 text messages. And he sent uh, 59 WhatsApp messages. And so they're collecting all sorts of data about us. And uh, I'm not sure they have to be that direct uh, and actually listen into what we're saying. That sounds like hard work. Uh, and I think there's easier ways to get at us. Hmm. So what kind of impact these kids that are growing up today they've got iPads at young ages they're playing on the Roblox and they're doing all this interactive stuff and they're already being manipulated for lack of a better word by these algorithms what type of uh, impact do you foresee uh, this having on, on our next generation as they grow older um, you know that is uh, really disturbing especially for uh, young uh, women as far as the effect on Instagram or that Instagram can have on them and um, I've noticed that even with my students if you look at the amount of time they spend on these social media apps one of the assignments I give them is to do a social media detox for five days and I was just finishing up the grading of those uh, reflection papers and it was interesting Some students said well you know I've I don't really remember a time when I wasn't on social media. I got on it when I was 13, or my, my babysitter helped me get onto it when I was 11. Uh, and uh, so they've had a long time where they've always been connected, and they just assume that's the way life is. Um, I think there's, um, you know, I, just, I think that's a, a question that we don't know the answer, and it's kind of like releasing a drug. Uh, and saying, uh, well, go ahead and try this drug when your brain's, brain is still forming, and, uh, you know, we'll worry about it 20 years later. Uh, and it just um, doesn't seem right the way we've allowed some of these platforms uh, and these pernicious algorithms to seep and creep into our lives without uh, even a warning, right? Even a, a, we don't even know how our data is being used. We don't even know how these algorithms are deciding things for us, what to show. And so some people have argued that we need a FDA uh, for algorithms. So that, uh, you know, when you get your snack bar, it has all this nutritional information on it. And you can see, oh, my God, this isn't really, a, you know, nutritional granola bar that I thought. It's packed with sugar and all sorts of chemicals. I don't really want to eat it. Well... You know, if we had an FDA that says, hey, this news feed is being uh, brought to you by your clicks and um, the fact that we monitored what uh, movies you watched on YouTube last night and uh, all these other things, you may decide, okay, wait a second, I don't want to participate. So at the very least, we got to start there. And, um, you know, yeah. I, I think that... 
it's very difficult to be a parent. Um, and I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, parents are bad. Uh, uh, I think it's extremely difficult not to let your kid on these platforms. But uh, there can be a lot of uh, unintended consequences. Yeah, time will tell. It's one thing that I struggle with as a parent amongst all my friends. How much time do you allow your kids on the iPad? How much time? Where, where's the limit? You don't want to be so extreme that your kid's the only one that doesn't have one. Because then they right. feel left out, and then they want to rebel in other ways. It's a really tricky time. I mean, it's it's super tricky. And the thing is, I get what they're saying about the FDA uh, analogy, but to me, I, I mean, I guess it's better than nothing potentially. But to me, that's not going to be the necessarily the solution. Because okay, you see a bunch of things that you know this is brought to you by this click and that 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 there's nothing there that's tangible. That's just like okay, that's that's information. That's that's phantom. Whereas the FDA is saying, hey, this has got saturated fats and tons of carbs and blah blah. You're like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to put on five pounds. I'm going to see that. You can't see this other thing that we're talking about, which I think makes it even trickier. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's a good point. You know, and, but I'm curious about back to your study, which I think find is fascinating. This five day thing that you talked about the five-day detox. Can you give us a little peek at behind, behind the curtain on that program? What do you have them doing, and then how do you uh, analyze their success rate? Well, I don't, uh, you know, take their phones away from them or anything like that. Um, uh, what I do is I ask them to, you know, pick five days to go without social media, and that I classify YouTube as social media. I classify Snapchat. Um, I don't classify just messaging your friends through text, but um, they have to try to go off of it for five days. Now, I'll tell you that some students don't make it, and they will write in their reflection ma uh, paper, you know, I tried it, but there's just no way I could stand it. I didn't mm -hmm. know what to do with myself. And I think that should be telling uh, for us as adults that we have a generation of folks that at least some of them um, really don't know how to live without social media. And, you know, I think uh, social media has done a good job of making us think that it was only when we had social media that you could organize and you could help people and, and uh, Right. You know, raise money for uh, some kid that uh, needs a new kidney. Well, you know, I'm old enough. I'm 53. I remember when we did that prior to social media. Um, mm -hmm. That all that good stuff happened. Uh, believe it or not, back before Facebook and and all these other platforms. And so uh, I just think this idea that we have to. Um, uh, have these platforms in order to have high quality interaction is just uh, it's 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 pretty disturbing and so totally um, some students uh, stick to it and they say I slept so much better I actually got a, some books read because I wanted to read books but I haven't done it for years I used to love reading and they uh, decide they're going to quit entirely uh, whereas others uh, find that uh, they just can't even do the five days. Do you see a future without social media, or are we are we stuck? Has the train left the station? There's no turning back. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm sure you've seen what uh, China's been doing. They've really cracked down on their social media, and also uh, with teenagers as far as gaming. I think anybody that's under 
is it 18 or maybe it's 21, uh, can only game for three hours a week. Um, and I think they have seen what social media has done to our country as far as not being able to talk civilly with somebody you disagree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've uh, decided they don't want to go there. And so I think there's a lot of ill effects here. I don't know if uh, we can put the genie back in the bottle, though. It's crazy. I got to tell you, we're in some serious trouble if we don't somehow adjust in our society here as Americans. Because just like you said, there's going to be other countries that are tightening up on these technologies or having more influence. And I'm not saying that it's always right because you still want the freedom of speech and the access. There's somewhere in the middle. There's a balancing test. But uh, if we continue to, de- I feel like it's been so negative. It's had such. There's yeah. got. There's a lot of positives, but it's there's so many negatives to it here. Uh, and they look at us like we're. And they're easy. It's easy to manipulate now the the news. And that's something else that you talk about with your the deep fakes. Go, get, let's go into some of that. What what exactly are deep fakes, and and what's the concern with those? So deep fake is a synthetic representation of either a person in a video or in audio that is made to represent or is put forward as representing a real person. And so if you have seen some of these, I'm sure you've probably seen, uh, there's one called, I think it's a deep fake, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the actor now, it was like uh, Tom Cruise, uh, deep fake Tom Cruise, you can search on YouTube and find a number of very interesting deep fakes there, where it looked like Tom Cruise is saying these things, doing these things, but in fact, uh, it is a very sophisticated face swapping feature. And... There are a number of interesting ways in which it could be used for good. So, for example, if you had an awesome podcast like you do and you noticed you slipped up on introducing your guest or something like that, you can actually go back and edit the audio using something called Descript and uh, you train it on what your voice sounds like. And then it would sound exactly like you. Uh, giving the introduction, but that would be generated by a computer. Now, that's all well and good for the podcaster and the creative person, but how do criminals use it? Well, they get a whole bunch of audio of the CEO of a bank, and they then train an algorithm to sound like that CEO, and then they use it to call up someone else in the bank and say, hey, we are buying this other bank. Uh, I need you to transfer this much money into this account. Okay, and that has happened. There have Mm. been tens of millions of dollars that have actually been scammed with audio deep fakes. So let me just just stop you real quick, Scott, just to try to put this into perspective. You're saying that they get a voice of a CEO, a well-known voice, or, or somebody that just, it doesn't have to be well-known, it should just be well-known within that company's organization. And yep. they are able to manipulate it and they make a phone call and they basically like call the CFO and say, hey, this is Mr. CEO, I need you to wire transfer a few million dollars into this account. And the CFO truly believes that he or she is speaking with their superior. 
Yes, this has happened. Wow. Um, both the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal have run reports about these scams. They have not identified um, the particular bank that uh, was involved in these and the uh, other organizations that were involved in these because they kind of want to protect their name. You don't uh, want uh, it getting out that you were scammed if you're a bank. But this is a real problem, and it's getting down to where it's so easy to create a deep fake that, for example, my voice, your voice, it's out there, right? Uh, we could get a large enough sample of either of our voices to train a computer, to train an AI to predict what it would like, what it would sound like if we called our wives in distress um, and said, um, hey, honey, I don't know what happened, but uh, I just ran off the road, and they're arresting me right now. Um, I, I got a lawyer, but um, just uh, he needs some money uh, to uh, help represent me so I don't have to spend the night in jail. Here, I'm going to have you talk to him. Holy so shit. you can do something that quick, uh, and it would sound just like me or just like you. And uh, that's where I'm really worried because this technology, well, you know, that – three years ago would take a team of 30 people to make a deep fake and it looked pretty crappy well that uh, Tom Cruise deep fake is made by one guy and it takes him about a day to do it and so mm. um, that's where I think it's um, really disturbing because uh, this technology is becoming democratized and um, falling into the hands of people that uh, are not going to use it for good so what are some of the technological fixes that, that may be available to combat some of these dangers? Well, one of them uh, comes from the area that's really hot right now of cryptocurrency. Um, it's called an NFT, and I'm sure you've heard about this for art, but it's a way to uh, take a file and kind of put a digital signature on it. And then you can track as that file the property of it has moved from people to pe uh, one person to another. Now, with digital art, that uh, is a situation where uh, there's only one of it, but you can have, for example, a photo that I take, and you could have it create a digital signature, an NFT, and then I could have multiple ones that I could send out. And it would have kind of like a... Um, yeah, a digital signature that couldn't be forged that would be on that and we would know it was authentic. Okay, so that way if um, President Biden or President Trump were uh, looking like they were giving a speech about something, um, it would have some sort of digital signature that says, okay, this person recorded at this time and place and we know that it hasn't been manipulated. And so that's one of the uh, ways that deep fakes can be used. Um, unfortunately, I would mention too that deep fakes are used often um, uh, against women uh, in what some people are referring to as non consensual pornography. So being able to um, uh, put someone's likeness on a, a pornographic actor. And in some countries, this has been used to silence journalists. So you can imagine in the Middle East, if you're a woman journalist, um, 
that they might uh, do this uh, as a way to kind of silence you from reporting anymore. And so um, it's a crime uh, that's all, always against women, uh, and uh, it's very disturbing because even if you know it's not real, there's a lot of psychological damage that um, you know happens there. So there's lots of uh, really horrible ways that deep fakes are being used, everything from financial scams uh, to this uh, type of intimidation. Mm. Jeez, this is so scary. I'm thinking about some of this stuff, and I look at my website, my 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 normal website that links all my podcasts, and I'm able to see if it's through WordPress, I'm able to see which countries. There's always people from China looking at this website. I mean, I don't know what that means, but there's always people from China looking at it. I got to tell you, you're making me think. You're making me think deep. uh, No pun intended here. Um, But so the so the you're saying that there would be a blot, um, a digital signature, like on a YouTube video, for example. Yeah, so it basically would come from the camera that uh, recorded it, and then you could track through a technology we call blockchain, which I'm sure your listeners have heard about in regards to cryptocurrencies, but we could track through a blockchain um, what edits were made and by whom and when those edits were made. And so that's one way Adobe is actually looking into kind of baking this into some of their software um, so that when a video is produced uh, using Adobe Premiere, that it will have that digital signature. And then if it uh, is... uh, you know, given to NBC or something like that, they know, okay, well, that did come from Scott. That wasn't from somebody pretending to be Scott. Mm. And so it, it gets into these cryptographic um, signatures. But um, a lot of these companies have, have known about blockchain for a long time and have been looking into it. So like I said, we're seeing big names like Microsoft um, looking at this as well as um uh, Adobe systems. So yes, we've all heard blockchain. We all know that it's tied to crypto world and all this stuff. But explain, dumb it down for us in layman's terms. What exactly is blockchain, Scott? Well, imagine a spreadsheet where you start with the first line of data, and once you put that first line of data in, you do a really hard mathematical calculation that summarizes that data in a special way, and you come up with a number, and that's what we call a hash. And uh, so that's what, if you've heard of Bitcoin miners, that is what Bitcoin miners are doing. They, they are actually solving that puzzle. They're coming up with that hash that has a unique mathematical quality. Now, let me just, well, stop, you. Let go, me just stop you real quick. Go ahead. So when you say Bitcoin miners, these are not people that are mining. Like, like when you think of mining, we think of coal. Right. I mean, right, right. Like, these are not people that are getting their hands dirty in mining. These are people that are mining uh, mathematical equations. Yes, that's a way to look at it. They are basically solving a, a mathematical problem, and they have big computers that do this, and their reward for solving it is to get some sort of you know, uh, Bitcoin themselves, right? So that's the, the mining reward. Now let me ask you this, uh, again, just to, make, to, to follow this step by step. Why... What is the incentive? What what is the purpose of this mining thing? Why why is there this reward system in the first place? Well, we'll we'll add in just a minute. Okay. So that hash created for that first row in your spreadsheet, when you take that hash and you 
bring it down to the second row, and then you enter more data, and you do another calculation that not only includes the data on the second row, but also includes the hash from the first row. Okay, and then we take the hash from the second row, we move it down to the third row, we enter new data, we do another hash calculation that includes all the data that's on the third row, as well as the hash from the second row. So it's called a block chain, uh, moving the hash from uh, one row that's calculated for one row down to the next is what chains it together. So that's where we get the chaining. And because it's so difficult to make these hashes, and they're generally considered one way, you, you can figure out uh, if the hash is correct uh, by taking the data running it uh, forward, but you can't take a hash and, and figure out the data from that. Um, uh, this is considered one way and very hard to do. It would be really impossible for me to go back and alter the data on line one because every time that a new hash gets created, that gets broadcast and everybody verifies that that's correct. So in order to alter something on line one, uh, or in row one, I would have to have very, very powerful computers and I'd have to have over 51% of all the nodes out there in the world uh, on this blockchain to be able to outvote everybody else. And it's just simply not practical. And so this is what we call a proof of work blockchain. And um, that's uh, why we reward them is because it's really hard work. It takes a lot of electricity. It takes a lot of uh, big computers in order to do that. But it makes uh, this great ledger that is append only and most importantly, it's immutable. So you can't change it. So that's so, what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask yeah. you, what's the main purpose for the blockchain? Yeah, it's to, uh, so blockchain... Uh, is to have a distributed ledger. There's no central authority. Uh, it's transparent, but there's no identifiable information. There's there's what we call keys. There's public keys and, and uh, related private keys that you might see. Uh, only you see the public key in the blockchain. Uh, but um, it's transparent but anonymous, and it's immutable, so it cannot be changed. And that is why it was used for... Bitcoin because that solves something called the double spend problem. When we have digital cash, um, the, the problem with digital cash was always like everything digital. You can make copies of it, right? So I can, uh, if I have an MP3 um, that I like of a song, I can make it a copy of it and it's identical. And so the big problem of figuring out digital money was how do we solve this double spend problem? So how do I make sure that I don't send you $20 and I send Joe $20? And it's the same $20. Okay, And that sounds a little ridiculous to us right now, but that was the big problem. And that by having this immutable ledger that once I send you the $20, it is now transferred on that ledger to you, and I no longer have the authority to send it to Joe. Okay, So it solved that problem, and that's why it's used in um, cryptocurrency. But it has lots of other applications too. So you can use it for other places where you'd like to have a distributed ledger and uh, you want to have it be somewhat transparent and you uh, want it to be immutable. So think about uh, shipping. 
right? So I want to know that this bottle of wine came from this vineyard in France. Uh, and I want to be able to track it throughout the entire system. And I want to see every entry in that blockchain of where it was, how long it was on the ship, at what temperature was it at, on the ship, and make sure I'm getting a good quality bottle of wine. And so there's uh, lots of other applications outside of uh, cryptocurrencies. So this is, and I know you're not a financial advisor, and this is very early in this uh, crypto phase that we're, that we're entering into. But because of the blockchain and because of the value of, of the U.S. dollar and money in general potentially con continuing to devalue, um, where does the where do you see this whole crypto world, especially Bitcoin, going in the near term, or even in the near and, and far term? Um, well, uh, <laughs> as far as investing goes, um, I, I think it's kind of like putting spice on your uh, meal. Right, so if you put a, a, a quarter of a teaspoon, it makes it kind of interesting and exciting. But if you put a cup, it's not so good. Uh, and same sort of approach is what I'd suggest for any investments in uh, things like Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, because it does go up and down. It's extremely volatile. We don't know what's going to happen. It can, there's all sorts of external risks, of regulation of, um, you know, uh, you know, just all sorts of risks that are hard to anticipate. Um, sure. So I think something's going to be around. There's another cryptocurrency called Ethereum that allows you to do smart contracts. And some, there's some really interesting stuff happening with that. So some real business applications. And I think that uh, we're going to see Ethereum uh, as probably the standard for uh, smart contracts, for NFTs, for... Um, other types of uses it's really some people call it a, uh, a worldwide computer so you build your application on this worldwide computer called the ethereum network right and it's also tied with a uh, a payment uh, so uh, a coin called ether and uh, i think it's a very interesting i think it'll be around i think there's so much momentum that something will exist um but um, i would just uh, be cautious uh, sure. and it's uh it's fascinating to see what's happening right now with something called central bank digital currencies because the central banks are realizing how antiquated their system is. And they look at crypto and they say, my goodness, you know, some unbanked person uh, with a cell phone can now participate in the monetary system using cryptocurrency, but they can't using our dollars. Why is that? And so there's been quite a number of experiments going on right now to bring some of the good benefits, uh, not necessarily the appreciation that we see with Bitcoin, but uh, some of the good benefits of cryptocurrencies to our regular dollars. So when you say central bank, are you talking about like... The uh, Fed. So the, the Fed. federal government. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, we have the, the Fed here in the U.S. Um, and uh, that's our central bank. Um, if you look at the European Union, uh, that everybody who uses the euro, they have one central bank of Europe. Uh, and if you then look at Great Britain, they have the pound, they have their own central bank. So I'm talking about um, the uh, official government entities that issue dollars. And there's some interesting and kind of weird stuff that can happen with that as well. So we had the... Uh, 
stimulus, you know, where we all got a, a, a check of some amount or most of us got a check of some amount deposited into our bank account. Well, in the future, the government could, uh, the government was creating new money at the time. We always like to say print, printing money, but it, it's not printed. Uh, only about 10% of money is actually in a physical form. Most of it's, you know, just numbers in a computer somewhere. Uh, but rather than creating that in our bank accounts, they could have airdropped it into our wallets on our cell phones. And then they can do all sorts of interesting stuff uh, once it's there as well, because it's really kind of like pro programmable money. Hmm. It's, it's so hard to wrap my head around this whole thing. It really is. I, I feel like such a dummy when I start talking about this stuff, because... <laughs> it's just it's mind-boggling it's mind-boggling you put money into bitcoin most people aren't buying a coin but you buy a fraction you know you buy a couple hundred here a couple hundred there and then where's the you know then it's worth it's worth fifty thousand then it's worth sixty thousand and you decide you want to cash out but that money where was that money created you know we're talking about something digital you can't touch it where did that extra $10,000 per coin get created? Well, it, uh, a good analogy for Bitcoin is gold. So I buy uh, $10 worth of gold, uh, it, or $50,000 worth of gold. Uh, the value of gold goes up to $60,000 because, you know, there's a societal norm that says it's not worth $60,000. Um, and I sell it, and the capital gain that I've uh, achieved there is just through the appreciation of that asset. So uh, in that regard, uh, you aren't actually getting more Bitcoins or fractions of Bitcoins. It's just the value of what you have has gone up. And uh, so, so a right. really good analogy for Bitcoin is gold. And, and there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin that will ever be created. Uh, I think there's... Uh, about three Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of gold that has ever been mined in uh, human history. So we don't know if there's more gold somewhere else, but um, it is in limited supply, and it appreciates and depreciates uh, according to the value that people put on it. You know, it could also be that everybody decides that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is not worth anything, and it goes to zero. Just sure. like we decided that, oh, you know, Gold, uh, everybody wants to be wearing copper on their rings. And then copper would skyrocket and gold would go down. Not an not entirely proper analogy there. Gold has other uses, right? So it uh, can be used in electronics and all sorts of other things. Is the Fed nervous? Is the Fed worried about uh, overall about this cryptocurrency thing and m maybe trying to find ways to regulate it and, and make it less valuable? I don't know if they're actually going to attack it in that way, but certainly the IRS is going to be going after cryptocurrency investors. So when you do have that appreciation happen and you sell your Bitcoin, um, the IRS considers that to be property. And so that $10,000 would be a capital gain that you're going to have to pay either long-term or short-term capital gains on. And a lot of people are not doing that. And also, and this is really disturbing when I talk to my students. I, I teach some very large classes, so I have uh, over 500 students in one of my classes. And as you can imagine, students have been home on their couch and they have taken to investing in uh, cryptocurrencies. But they're a little bit shocked when they find that 
when you sell out of your Dogecoin and buy Bitcoin with it. That's a taxable event. Mm-hmm. So every single transaction is now a taxable event that's going to have to be recorded as a capital gain or loss. And you need to be tracking whether he bought that coin a year ago or last week because that will affect your tax rate. Right. Because so, if you sell uh, it. When I tell them this, <laughs> I do a little <laughs> section on Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies, I can see about 10 jaws dropping in the auditorium <laughs> as they realize the nightmare of accounting that they might have to do. Yeah, so. that's that happens to so many people, um, especially your your unsavvy and your beginner investor. That's that's so common. Um, but because again, to your point, if you hold a stock or if you hold a, a security or anything like this, a coin for over twelve months, it's taxed at at the capital gains rate instead of your uh, income rate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's essentially correct. It, it depends on, you know, if you happen to be a high income right. uh, individual, it can vary somewhat from that. Yeah. When, when, you, when you talk about your students, um, you how long have you been a professor for? Well, I've been uh, doing it at least part-time since 2007, and I've been doing it full-time since 2014, I believe. Yeah, so 2007, yeah, 2007, we were not nearly what we are today when it comes to technology. I mean, social media was still very young, and it was like just Facebook, pretty much. MySpace was falling off the planet, and Facebook was taking over, but there wasn't much else yet. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to uh, get to is, as you work with your students today in 2021, versus the students going back to 2007, 2008, do you see a difference in these kids, and they're just generally speaking, their demeanors, their emotional intelligence, their social skills, those types of things. Because uh, that group that you're teaching today, like you mentioned earlier, has grown up nothing, knowing nothing else besides social media. And the kids from 2007 weren't really exposed to it as much growing up. Do you see a difference today versus 15 years ago? Well, you have to realize there's some of what we call survivorship bias. You wouldn't get into college if you were totally addicted to social media and couldn't function. Uh, so you have to realize that I'm seeing um, you know, these students that have come through some sort of filter. Uh, so I would just say that first off, that you know, my sample of students is not necessarily represent, uh, representative of everybody that's 20 years old. Uh, actually, um, very inspired by this generation. Uh, I know that uh, it's common for uh, generations to look down on, on the upcoming generation. In fact, my generation, uh, like I said, I'm 53, uh, I was part of the slackers, right? Because all we wanted to do was skateboard and smoke weed. So uh, <laughs> uh, we weren't going to amount to anything anything Um, but I think this uh, group the one thing I will say is um, they hear a lot of negativity uh, and certainly we have a lot of crises going on and they're under a lot of stress and so I really try to encourage them that you know there's uh, you kind of won the lottery being here in the U.S. for one thing being born here so you already got a, a huge advantage and when there's a lot of turmoil when there's a lot of you know things going on the pandemic climate change um you know all sorts of weird things happening um there's also a lot of opportunity to steer things in a new direction and so i think uh, 
for those of us that are our age, we need to kind of emphasize that to students that, hey, um, we're here with you. We're, um, uh, you know, we know that it's uh, stressful, but uh, it's not uh, hopeless. And I think that's one of the things that kind of discourages me sometimes is when I see students that are like, well, I'm already 21. I'm not going to accomplish anything. <laughs> and they're going, okay, you know, I still have lots of hopes and dreams for what I'm going to get done in the next 40 years, and you had damn well better too. So, My last question for you, Scott, um, back to where we started with artificial intelligence. Looking into your crystal ball, I mean, do you see a, a society one day where we're kind of overrun by robots? What is this? What is this? What does humanity look like potentially? Hundred years, two hundred years down the road. Well, I would hope that we would get control over these most pernicious uses, uh, or most uh, you know dangerous uses of uh, AI, mainly in social media and in deep fakes. Uh, but if we do, I think there's lots of great opportunities. I think uh, you know we talked about healthcare. Uh, I think there's. Um, all sorts of ways that we can solve problems. We can uh, look at how to discover new uh, drugs that can help us, uh, discover new um, uh, technologies that can help us. So I remain a techno-optimist uh, about the future. So I think, I think the future can be very bright, and the future is what we make of it. So it's up to us to decide what the future is, not up to... Um, you know, some destiny that's been pre-programmed for us uh, by the universe. Well said. Well said. Where can people find you online, Scott? You can find me at my website. It's uh, com. Uh, I also have a newsletter that um, I don't do any advertising or anything uh, on there. I just share my latest resources because I'm not on Facebook. You will not find me on Facebook <laughs> or Instagram or any of the social media. I've decided those are bad companies and I can't uh, criticize them and then be a hypocrite and uh, go post my uh, podcast about criticizing Facebook on Facebook. So uh, you so actually, you actually, where I send you're, things you're, out and share things. You can find that at FRT dot news so it's just no.com or anything it's frt.news interesting we'll link up some of that in the show notes but you mentioned something i didn't realize this you're so you're outspoken you're you're a, a completely against uh facebook and instagram um yeah i think the companies um i've just done such a horrible job of taking any responsibility i mean even uh, just complying with existing laws you know uh, making sure that people under 13 are not on their platforms uh without their parents permission um they've been selling to uh, you know kids that are uh, very young uh even though they knew it was against the law and they make so much money off of doing that that when they get a fine of five billion from the ftc federal transition it's seen as a slap on the wrist mm. and like getting a parking ticket. You know, if I could park in downtown New York and uh, I could uh, get a $20 parking ticket uh, for getting to park wherever I want in New York, well, I'd bet every day, right? Sure. <laughs> because I would, it's going to cost know, you more to find a, a valet spot so somewhere. Much and, you know, uh, it would be stupid not to. Yeah. And so uh, we just harder on these uh, companies and so um, uh, that's what I believe we have to do 
interesting stuff. Really, really uh, eye-opening, and I really appreciate your time today, Scott. We'll link you up in the show notes, and uh, we'll continue to see watch your work from afar. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.